0: Hello, my friends. Today, we're talking to Matt, the Developer Advocate Lead at BridgeCrew, and we discuss the challenges of providing a secure cloud experience for every use case, lessons learned from working in both startups and large enterprises, and how maintaining company culture requires effort from everyone that's a part of it. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. On your Twitter, you said you love whiskey, um, and I, I have a friend that's like a big whiskey guy. Like one time, he insisted I try his glass of a, of That was a seventy dollar pour, which I just thought was ridiculous. Um, and it tasted like uh, hand sanitizer, but uh, <laughs> I was just curious, like, like super, how super into whiskey are you? <laughs>
1: um, yeah, i've I've got a, a worryingly sized collection in the other room. I, <laughs> I'll send you a picture after this. Um, I, I I won't say it's like I wouldn't say it's something I I kind of spend any time per day getting into but in terms of you know visiting a distillery if i'm close to it or learning about different types of whiskey or you know i found that with the you know pre covid with the amount of business travel i was doing um there was always kind of different american whiskeys uh, you know japanese whiskeys irish whiskeys. and it was it was just kind of a cool thing to attach to a location you were at um in the same way i quite like craft beer you know there's always kind of a different style of beer wherever you go and a different story so it was it was something to do which which yeah, blended yeah. kind of activities and alcohol, but uh, yeah, I probably got about probably got about forty bottles. I would say um, it's not crazy. No, no, it's <laughs> it's not it's not over the top. But uh, at at some point, there probably does need to be a proper tasting session.
0: <laughs> well, so let, let's let's talk about uh things related to this podcast. Um, <laughs> how did you ah, first get into to? technology? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I
1: have always been like, not really, it never came up on like the, the coding side of tech. I came up on the like, really like hacking, breaking things, like enjoy a challenge side of tech. So my real entry into computers was probably because my parents had kind of technical roles. My, my father worked for the kind of uh, national grid, electricity companies here. So that was all kind of very maths power grid, you know, that kind of based, And he had like these really old work laptops that he'd use for like CAD and designing circuitry and stuff. So I kind of got introduced to those from quite a young age and kind of growing up in the North of England, um, you know, not exactly a big Silicon Valley tech hub, maybe there weren't quite as many, you know, access to systems and things like that available. So yeah, that from a young age. And then through family friends, like someone was really into Linux and I, I'd kind of hooked onto like... As I said, a V, I'd hooked onto networking in a big way. I found like the way the internet worked from like dial-up and understanding IP addresses and understanding how things talk to each other. Like I think that was like my first real passion. But obviously, as as kind of a, a teenager, you don't really have access to the kind of equipment your your Cisco's, your, you know, big networking vendors at the time. Uh, there was no real kind of software-defined networking. So um, someone put me onto Linux and I actually ended up learning Linux to to learn the networking side because obviously it was a lot easier to kind of mess around with networking in Linux than it was in Windows at the time you had a lot more access to the stack you could kind of understand, and that took me off on this kind of wild tangent of wanting to understand how Linux worked um, and so my first kind of job you know Linux all the way through uni uh, my first kind of job after uni was actually as a senior hire into a company that needed a back end Linux engineer um, that also could debug. Um, it was for a, a SaaS security product. So they needed people that understood networking to a high level, could kind of debug packet captures and things like Wireshark. Uh, but also it was an entirely Linux hosted system. So they needed someone with, with Linux skills. Um, so yeah, kind of weirdly fell into that through passions and, and what I was learning on the, the kind of geeky tech side rather than specifically my computer science degree. Um, yeah. but, but like I was saying earlier, I think, I think, the time that university gives you to kind of play around with those passions without having the kind of nine to five, like I definitely wouldn't say I could have done it without going to uni because it gave me that time to kind of explore those hobbies and, and things like that in a, in a very free way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'd say I, like my full-time job today is totally built on like lots of ancillary skills that were learned just kind of existing through college not necessarily right. in the classroom <laughs> yeah 100 percent. but um so you when you were talking about networking you mentioned cisco and i saw that you worked there for like a long time right before bridge crew what was it like moving through the various roles in the company and how'd you find your way to developer advocate which uh is what you're doing at bridge crew also
1: right yeah so as I said, kind of always liked kind of a hackier side of, you know, you could say like ideas, breaking something to rebuild it, understand it, kind of proof of concept side of things. Obviously, you can't really be in Linux and in kind of any kind of operations engineering role for very long without kind of needing to at least script fairly well. And so, you know, my first role kind of brought me into, we, we were writing some stuff at university, but into kind of really problem solving and automating through scripting and then programming. So it kind of forced me to kind of bridge that gap between, I guess, what you'd call like uh, dev and ops nowadays, but I, I definitely kind of started very much in that ops camp. Cisco was really interesting because at that time, the product I was working on was kind of coming in through an acquisition and it was all bare metal um and again just through kind of hacking and and general interest like i was pretty familiar at that point with virtualization and vmware and the kind of open source alternatives my um my degree uh, thesis was actually on comparing um how close you could get with open source software to building out like a microsoft style user experience in terms of federated identity and authentication and login and kind of all the Active Directory Microsoft stuff back then that was on-prem. It was all about kind of how close could we get with OSS. And so, you know, when it came to look to move from kind of a bare metal environment within that kind of Cisco acquired product, um, I found myself kind of in the middle of, well, there's these new things called containers, and we already know about C H root groups at jails, and do we want VMs? And, and so I got quite a lot of experience with you know, almost my first modernization project, if you will, like, how do you take a 22 data center bare metal infrastructure and start thinking about virtualizing certain bits and start thinking about moving some of those into more programmatically updatable, programmatically definable things. Um, So that was pretty cool. And I found that very quickly, a lot of that work, just as much as it was about technology, was also about building allies and making sure people weren't just saying no because they were scared of that change. And, you know, some people that have been used to it the way it was, or didn't necessarily have the background or the experience with kind of virtualization and things like that. See, So so I found myself kind of doing that like internal advocacy role, um, just as much as the technology role. And that kind of stuck with me because then every opportunity since then, what we were trying to build was actually seen as really useful, you know, those common building blocks, those kind of platform the the automation around deployment. So I ended up taking a position in a platform team that was trying to abstract those ideas to make it easier for other teams to adopt kind of non-bare metal deployment strategies. And so we we tried to build kind of a, a platform for other future SaaS products to sit on top of. But again, that was a lot of Winning friends and influencing people as much as it was technology because if people didn't get how they would use it or why they would use it or how their day to day development life cycle or the day to day kind of workflow changed, then you're doesn't matter how good your technology is, right? You're You're never going to get the adoption that the whole point of a platform like that needs because it's only uh, cost saving to the business when you're actually getting the uh, economies of scale on something like that. So yeah, every every role since has been very heavily in kind of developer experience from a use this to save time, you know, automation evangelism. But I just found that more and more it was just as much about the people as the tech, and I think that's how I kind of found myself eventually full time in a uh, developer advocacy role. At the time, Cisco was kind of heavily pushing. The fact that most of their products, most of their solutions did have APIs and it wasn't particularly well known. It wasn't well, you know, you had customers asking for fixes on features that they didn't necessarily maybe know there was an API that they could actually add that feature themselves if they wanted to potentially quicker or, or at less cost. And so there was a, a team DevNet spun up uh, to really evangelize the, the power of APIs and the power of programmability. And I ended up doing kind of so many talks uh, while part of a CTO, uh, cloud CTO office, while at Cisco, that the team eventually just said, "Hey, do you want to just come and work with us directly because you're already a speaker at most of our t- uh, most of our events anyway?" So yeah, that, that's kind of how it snowballed. But it was never a, it was never a plan. I never went, "I want to become a developer advocate." It just kind of happened through that kind of balance
0: of people and technology. So would you say being a developer advocate is like as much convincing the developers to use certain tools as like convincing other people in the organization that certain things developers want to be working on are worth their time like it, that that's kind of what I was gathering there yeah it's it's i wouldn't say so much convincing but like <laughs> yeah i when it, i was saying yeah. it i was like that's a bad word to use <laughs>
1: yeah. more, more like yeah if, if you're not if you're not the, if you're not getting the feedback from the developer about whether what you think they want to do is or isn't what they want to do. Then, yeah, it's you're you're more you're more marketing or sales than you would be dev advocacy in my in my perspective. Yeah, it's all about the UX for the developer. If if it's not working for them, then we need to ask ourselves why.
0: Very cool. So, what caught your eye about Bridgecrew? What made you decide to leave Cisco and do a similar role at a new company?
1: Yeah. It's a, a very good question. The lockdown definitely had a lot to do with it. You know, the first time you, the first time you can kind of stop and be in one place, like, and and I'm not saying at all that it's not a world and a life I want to go back to, but I was doing a lot of traveling for my previous role, and obviously, all that came to a very abrupt halt with the lockdowns and COVID and all the kind of travel uh, restrictions put in place. And at that time, you know, you realize that while well, travel is amazing and you get to speak to a lot more people face-to-face, and I do miss that kind of human interaction side of, of the role even now with things not quite opening back up, it also allows you to kind of focus on, you know, maybe take a step back and think actually like the, the 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 travel serves as quite a distraction. Like what is it actually I'm trying to do? What is it I'm trying to grow into? And, you know, it it kind of always harks back to that fact I was... I've, the one passion that hasn't kind of waned through my career has been that like pen tester, hobbyist attitude to security. And so when this opportunity came up to do something, A, with a huge open source basis to the company, you know, our open source tool off from BridgeCrew was like the first thing that was written when BridgeCrew was in stealth mode. Like, you know, it's it's deep in kind of cloud and, you know, still requires that kind of Bottom up, like developer buy-in, but is all related to kind of securing your cloud infrastructure. Like it just couldn't have been a more perfect combination of things that I'm not just enjoy doing for a job, but actually passionate about. So it, it it was just right place, right time, and it was it was just too good a too good a growth opportunity uh, for me to turn down. Really,
0: that's really cool. So I, I know a big part of Bridgecrew is moving cloud, shifting cloud security left. And, uh, as I was preparing for this interview, it reminded me of this other company we had on like quite a while ago, they're called now secure, and they also kind of shift security left in turn, but, uh, for app security, they're, they more focus on making sure mobile apps are secure before they go out so they can like do that check. But, uh, with bridge crews focus on cloud security, I'm just curious, like what it, looks like in practice how different types of security are like different from each other f- from like the company's perspective working on it day to day whether it's cloud f- security versus app security or i don't know they, i feel like there's like 10 other different types of security to focus <laughs> on the, yeah
1: <laughs> the the, joy, the joys of the blanket uh ah, defense in depth you need them all <laughs> argument yep. uh, but no I, I i won't be that lazy um so yeah i think the the way i try and i try and put it is you know if we go back a few steps in it and computing history you know you you would have bare metal for example or you would have on prem data centers and those on prem data centers would be behind firewalls and so the idea that the the notion of cloud security isn't really a problem because there was no quote unquote cloud there wasn't a public set of apis that anyone with the right token could access. You know, the lowest access point you had was to your, you know, your application database on a physical server or to your application deployment running code on a physical Linux or a physical Windows installation. You know, you didn't have that like lower level access under your application stack, under your operating system stack. And obviously the cloud being like public and API driven, we now do have that. And so things that were never really a problem. Or they were a problem, but they just weren't as obviously exploitable. For example, you'd have to be inside that that user's network. You'd have to be in that enterprise environment. You'd have to find your way into, you know, through firewalls and all that kind of stuff, rather than just going to Azure or Amazon or Google, you know, pick your favorite. I hate I hate singling one out rather than the other. But you know, rather than just kind of firing something at an API and seeing if the token works and seeing if you get back a list of IAM policies or IP addresses or security groups or whatever you know service it is so i think with that change there's a kind of a, a learning experience you know there's a lot of there's a lot of switches and knobs and buttons for each of the cloud providers different products and they're adding more products all the time and kind of on a slight usability versus security tangent which we see all the way through the industry since the beginning of time the default settings, which are easy to explain, that are easy to get someone up and running might not necessarily be the secure ones that are going to guarantee you compliance and are going to make it harder for an attacker to move laterally if they do manage to break into something. And so shifting left for us with cloud security is all about, look, if you're a small DevOps team, you know, you are not expected to know the, you know, thousand page, CIS benchmark compliances for Kubernetes and AWS and Azure and you know everything else um, that you would need to know. And yet all of these items are literally the first attack point. They're below your code, they're below your, your VMs. Like if, if, if you don't get those right, there's no point having your application security scanning. There's no point having your kind of container image scanning because someone can go in at a lower level directly kind of into your cloud environment. And so, for us, it's about kind of utilizing snapshots of that, and we we do a lot with infrastructure as code because it's declarative, and just like we kind of try and move to declarative things for everything in in infrastructure these days because it's repeatable. So, if we can define our infrastructure as infrastructure as code, be it Kubernetes manifest, or Helm, or Terraform, or you know, um, what, whatever your preferred um, infrastructure as code language. Uh, bridge crew works to then kind of go, hey, okay, I can see the objects you're about to try and create declared as infrastructure as code. Did you know that actually that, for example, default S3 configuration for a bucket you want to create isn't secure? You should enable logging. You should enable versioning. You should encrypt at rest. Like all of these things that are not done by default, turn all these on. Or hey, did you realize you are leaving this low balancer open to the whole world? Did you want to do that, or is that an oversight? Because that's the default security group. Things like that just allow. Effectively, we like to think of it as like a virtual security team, like you know, and we try and surface this information in places that developers would be anyway. So we try to annotate pull requests or merge requests so that, you know, it's part of a developer's review cycle anyway, like, hey, you probably don't want to push this new infrastructure's code to production because of these issues we're not trying to say, hey, go and become a security team in your own right and go and have all these other security-based dashboards. It's just trying to surface this information like via a VS Code plugin or, you know, alerting in Slack when we detect drift between what they think's running in production and and what is actually running in their AWS account. So all these kind of little things that we can do to kind of help developers almost have that
0: virtual security team. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Thanks. Um, I feel like you explained that super well. So it's like a Kind of a virtual assistant that is extremely well integrated with the cloud providers to be an expert in the all the various deep settings of the cloud provider's offerings to know which ones are secure, which ones aren't, for which use cases also. Right
1: right and and I'm glad you said that because I thought I ranted far too long on that explanation, so
0: I appreciate no, that. no it was it was great <laughs> it, um, it actually uh did make sense through all the tech words cool and 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 obviously it's you know it's not the be
1: all and end all like there will be certain use cases that boil down to well, we cannot possibly know whether this is something you meant to do because that choice is based on your individual business's requirements and a a person has made a decision somewhere as to whether that is or isn't needed. So at that point, we can only flag that issue up as, hey, this is potentially against a PCI DSS or pick your favorite compliance policy. And there will then need to be a conversation within the business as to why that setting's there, does it matter? Um, And we allow kind of you know, things to be skipped and reasons to be given again in the code. So you've got a record for future generations of engineers, but yeah, it's, it's never quite as, it's never quite as, you know, click and done. It's uh, it's, it's a process just like anything else, but uh, yeah, we try and put that process where the developers are. That's, that's key.
0: So I, I know your platform also does infrastructure automation. Do you ever come aclo- across potential clients that are like, pretty hesitant to let you modify their infrastructure in any way, like having a lot of inertia there?
1: Sure. So we very much believe in kind of the GitOps, and that's a horribly overloaded buzzword, so I'll, I'll rephrase. <laughs> um, we very much believe in source control being, you know, your record of truth and history and changes. So if we do make suggestions to fix things, the preferred method and our platform can do this is automatically raise a pull request into your code base, just like a developer would to fix something manually. And at least then that change is documented and part of source control um, and things like this. I was I was having a rant at a conference last week about this, this is gonna be way down a technical rabbit hole tangent, but about mutating admission controllers for Kubernetes, like things that will take the definition of what the developer or the ops team is saying they want Kubernetes to do, and then changing it in some way before it goes onto the cluster. And it's like, well, that is the opposite of, you know, kind of read-only immutable infrastructure because you don't, like, let's say someone breaks that admission controller or changes the rules of that. You don't know that a deployment, even though it's in Git and it's, it should be final, you don't know what that actually looks like by the time it's running in production. So, um, yeah, we, we take a very strong, this should all be in Git. And the only time we kind of don't do that is to alert that, Hey, you, you deployed this from infrastructure as code stored in Git. What is now running in your AWS environment doesn't look like it did when it was in Git. So we think we, that that triggers a drift detection rule because we think that maybe one of your engineers or someone or an attacker has gone and manually made a change to that object in the cloud. But the recommended remediation would still be to rerun your infrastructure's code to bring that back to um, where it was rather than go into the cloud and make even more manual changes.
0: So being like extremely transparent is a big priority. Right. That's yeah. hundred percent.
1: Yeah. That sec- security shouldn't be, oh, go and ask Bob two weekends ago what he did to fix that bug. It should be there just like another commit, just like a feature, just like a typo in a, a web interface.
0: So what, what's like one thing you had to learn coming at, from a developer advocate at Cisco, now at Bridge Crew. BridgeCrew is a smaller company, obviously, than Cisco working on like a pretty niche but very intricate problem. What was what was the challenge for you coming coming to this company?
1: Interesting. It was it was a completely different way of working. I, I get to I'm gonna kind of take the the cop out easy way of saying this because I can honestly say that I really liked the way of working. I think it would have been harder if I'd come in and gone, oh, like I don't like this at all. But actually I quite like that when I joined, I was employee 22, there were few enough employees that you could literally learn everyone's name and what everyone did and what teams everyone was on and what everyone was working on. And, you know, it was small enough that you could kind of spend time with those other teams to learn the product and to learn, you know, how product management works and how marketing works and how the production team was building some of the production automation. So like as someone that quite likes Knowing how things work, I actually really enjoyed that, and also the autonomy because there wasn't enough people for everyone to be doing each other's job, so like you kind of did have the kind of I don't need to ask you know four levels of corporate approval to to do x y and z i can I can publish this blog, I can write this code like you know that was that was pretty nice to me, although you know you do work pretty hard for a startup so either way it was no it was it was really good I think um I think the, the one thing I found maybe a little bit strange was obviously with that kind of everyone talks to everyone. Like I'd be super useful at Cisco, for example, only updating like a couple of colleagues because they were the only people that really needed to know what was going on and what was working on. But like communication in a startup is absolutely way more key because everyone's working at like, lightning pace and if they don't know what you're writing or when that's going to be released or what code that maybe could help someone else or a customer you're talking to about an issue you know it'd be very easy to waste that precious 22 person resource on repetition and things so I definitely needed to improve my kind of internal communication skills you know especially kind of working from home and things that's that's definitely uh that's definitely been an interesting challenge, just, just getting used to that kind of cadence of, of pace of change, but, uh, but no, otherwise really really positive and my only other kind of startup experience was straight after university when we were working for a company that was building a kind of connected data center for the NHS and they went bust before we got live, but that's, a that's another story. So no, it's, it's been many years in the making and, and I feel like this is my proper, uh, my first kind of proper startup experience it's, it's taught me so much like learning the other teams and you know getting a real visibility into kind of teams that you would never have otherwise spent time trying to understand the inner workings of like marketing like hr like kind of you know startup recruitment and things like that no super interesting
0: that's really cool yeah i, I gotta say i mean we're technically a startup here at the podcast really small um and Yeah. I I don't know how you count employee numbers because people have come and go, but as of right now, I'm like employee number three. Um, But it's, uh, yeah, like I really like the concept of everyone is pretty clearly the expert on whatever they're doing. And so that was something I had to learn really early on when I came on as like the audio engineer guy. And I would like ask someone else a question like, hey, is it okay if I do this thing with the audio? And they're like, I don't know, you're the audio guy. Where are you're you asking the, me? Yeah. Like, <laughs> there, is, there is no one else to ask. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh okay. So I just kind of get to decide. And yeah, it's that's a really cool thing. I mean, obviously, like you said, owning your expertise like that obviously comes with like harder work, but it it's cool because you you own it and and it's yours. It's it's nice to it's nice to have that really fast
1: feedback loop of kind of seeing out what you put in kind of thing. You know, you've worked on this piece of content, you've ideated, you've created, and it's there. Or, you know, a customer had an issue, you've worked on it, it's done. Like, it's, yeah, it's it's really nice to kind of feel that really tight loop rather than kind of in a few months' time going, Oh, yeah, I remember when I did that work. It's live. That's cool. Like, it's, it's you know, just those little wins every every week are definitely definitely worthwhile.
0: So you're employee 22. How many people are there now?
1: I think at time of acquisition, and don't quote me on this, I think there were 43. Um, so yeah, we, we doubled in size pretty quickly um, to the point that when I joined, we could all fit on a single Zoom screen and for our, for our team meetings, just about. And then kind of two weeks after I joined, we'd spilled over onto page two. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was, it was a crazy, crazy time, uh, but super cool to witness the growth and you know, witness new customers coming on and
0: new products and features. It was, yeah, super exciting. And you mentioned the acquisition. I, so I guess I was under the impression that uh, Palo Alto had already bought BridgeCrew before you joined, but you were there for the acquisition? I was there for six months, yeah,
1: before the acquisition. Oh, that's really um, cool. Yeah, I joined in August of last year, and we were, the acquisition closed in March.
0: Nice. So, what's the relationship like there? Because I feel like the vibe I'm getting is that it's still very much bridge crew startup culture that exists within Palo Alto. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, 100%. Um having only ever seen kind of acquisitions from the other side. <laughs> you know, never never done it this way around. Um e- exactly that. We're still, you know, building out our product. Yes, we're an API driven platform, so there's integrations going on to, you know, share data from existing products to to build feature sets into other products within the suite. Uh, But in terms of kind of my role in DevRel, in terms of kind of what BridgeCrew's mission is, the product, you know, what we're trying to enable for developers, it's it's business as usual, which is really cool.
0: Yeah, that is really cool. So before we kind of get towards the end of the podcast, is it cool if I ask you kind of some of your leadership questions, uh, some leadership questions about your role there? Yeah, sure. So do you run a team there? And if so, what's your approach to leadership like? How would you describe that? sure so i've
1: run bigger teams in cisco at the moment i would say no because we are a team of two and it doesn't really seem to be much point in having a you know manager employee relationship <laughs> for what would effectively be a straight line up to my director so um no we we basically work as just a a, a team of two at the moment i think from historically speaking in terms of like leadership style I made I made some pretty bad decisions in the past which helped me course correct pretty quickly um, which was kind of trying to do what I myself hated but accidentally kind of fell into like micromanaging uh, a team of engineers when like I had an idea of how I wanted something to kind of look technically um, but at the same time, I wasn't really the one doing all of the coding work. And so there was no point kind of pushing implementation details on the people that were. Uh, and understandably that got people's backs up. Um, <laughs> so yeah, really kind of going back to what we were saying earlier, like the idea that you, you hire people for their skill set. And I like to kind of think of it like when I sat one of my favorite exams ever, which was the back in the day, like the red hat certified engineer exam. And I think I was like in my early twenties, I was on a placement year. They gave me the opportunity to do this and it didn't actually matter. Like the, the exam was marked by scripts running against the machine or the VM you were on to see whether the business outcome they had set you for a configuration or for something working was like it. It didn't really matter how they how you got to it, like, because different people would do it in different ways. All that mattered was, did it survive a reboot? Did it, you know, did it actually do the thing that the instructions had asked it to do? And compared to like a lot of exams these days where you're, you're kind of having to decipher the mindset of the exam question writer to work out what they want the answer to be, I really liked that kind of, you know, no, like all we care about is the results. And I think management style, like I said, made mistakes. Um, you're hiring people for their skills. You're you're bringing them in. You're giving them the job because you trust that they have that skill. That you that you you trust that you're bringing someone in that will ask if they don't know. They will ask for help. You know they're the right cultural fit to not be afraid to do that within the team. So let them go and do the thing you've asked them to do. Like I said, I'm I'm definitely guilty of not practicing what I preach there. But uh, yeah, fingers crossed. That is that is how I would manage future teams.
0: But that's why you're an expert on it, because you have not practiced it in the past. That's why, yes. <laughs> that's why you know.
1: Definitely the best the best, <laughs> the best uh, learnings are the ones that you make mistakes on for yourself, right?
0: <laughs> so how would you describe the culture at Bridge Crew? Really? I mean, I'm a Brit, right? So
1: I would say it's it's quite British. In its directness, like, you know, a spade is a spade kind of thing. And disagreements do not necessarily have to be seen as arguments. Like you can disagree and you can come to an agreement and then you can all just agree to execute. Um, I actually found it really refreshing compared to kind of, you know, the politics that go with large companies. It just allows everyone to kind of get on with, with what they're doing. Um, so, yeah, quite quite open, quite... You know, respectfully discussion based, um, if I had to coin a term. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, there's definitely no kind of stress about the politics, which is nice.
0: That's really cool. So uh, we hear from CTOs on the podcast a lot and like co founders that talk about culture as something that they have to really actively cultivate and keep a, af- finger on the pulse and make sure everything is going as planned. Um, But in your role, how do you view your responsibility to uh, maintain the company culture and keep that healthy? Yeah. And just, just to comment on that, I was actually
1: just about to say that I definitely feel the culture I came into when I joined was because of a concerted effort and a maintained and sustained effort. Um, by the founders, you could kind of tell that the culture was only like that because they themselves were, were kind of, you know, practicing what they preached in that respect. Um, and I think it's the same, right? I think anyone joining a team is going to, at some point, you know, subconsciously want to kind of, you know, fall in line or do as they see, or kind of, you know, quote unquote, fit with with how the rest of the team seems to be working, whether, whether consciously or not. And so I think to maintain a culture, you kind of have to practice that. Like if I enjoyed that culture when I came into it, I am just as responsible for making sure that the next people that join and I do like a welcome on board meeting and show them what we're doing in DevRel and show them our current projects and things, you know, I have to also be setting them up for that culture as well.
0: So before we wrap up, also, by the way, fantastic answer. Sorry, I, I didn't mean to glaze over that. Um, no, <laughs> but no. um, before we wrap up, is there anything else that we want to get out there that we didn't get a chance to touch on today? Hmm. I think one of the hardest
1: things we're seeing
0: from like uh,
1: how to plan for security and kind of you know if you are if you're a CTO, if you are a team lead and you're you're looking at, okay, compliance security, blah, blah blah like, what do we do? Where do we go? We are in the cloud. Are we sure we're doing all this kind of cloud security stuff? One issue we see a lot, which we've been really trying to focus on recently, is you know, if that team or that product like is planning to make, I don't know, a million dollars a year, you're not going to spend 5x on security tooling. You're not going to spend 5x on a security team and things like that. And a lot of the times, I think it's so easy to look at as you said, there's probably 12 different types of security from cloud security to you know, scanning your um, dependency, to, to looking at your application code, to looking at CVEs in your containers and things like that. And it's so easy to look at all of that output and go, well, if we if we started trying to pick through this, we're actually not going to deliver the product. So what's the point in securing something that isn't a product because we won't have time? And, and it, it sometimes feels like a bit of a lost cause. I, you know, I'd like to kind of have a conversation around that with anyone that's interested. Like I think more and more this is becoming a thing. You know, we as an industry are really good at adding new layers of abstraction, which may come with their own security implications, but we're very bad at like collapsing historic ones when we don't need them, even if You know, even if effectively everyone is taking a single path through that abstraction and it's not really needed anymore, we never really collapse it. So all the kind of baggage around it from a security perspective might still be there. And so, yeah, my only point of that would just be there are small things you can do that will make a big impact on your security posture. You are not going to put a two week sprint aside and go, right. We'll get security fixed. We'll patch all the CVEs. We'll get it done. And then we can we can move on with the product again. Like, but even just like, you know, using automation, if you're, if you're moving into this kind of cloud-first DevOps mindset of, you know, your developers aren't manually running tests, your CI CI CD pipelines doing it, you know, your deployments are happening automatically. Um, there are so many little things you can do. Uh, first of all, just to add to that CI CD pipeline to get a visibility. Of maybe the security issues you're dealing with. And that doesn't mean you have to fix them there and then. It's better to know and prioritize and think about them than than just think it's too big a job and not do anything at all. So yeah, um, incremental steps. Utilize any automation you already have to start getting that visibility. Um, and you know, by all means, come chat to me. Twitter, Slack, etc. I'd I'd love to have conversations about pain points with security because a security team that seems like a blocker, even if it's in automation, right? Even a modern security tool that spits out a thousand errors the first time you run it against your repo, like, is just gonna piss off your developers, <laughs> and that's not actually benefiting anyone in terms of security posture. So, a security team that went, hey, like we can see all these issues. Let's prioritize. Let's maybe fix one a sprint. I know it's going to take a while. I know it's a backlog, but you know it's a much more realistic way to approach it. And I think it puts a lot of people off less than trying to do the whole security as a button that if we work hard enough, we can push it.
0: That was a very... Developer advocate perspective on it, <laughs> which slash, I, I think slash
1: is bordering on rant, but
0: uh, yes, <laughs> no, that's awesome, man. Um, and yeah, I, I, I guess prior to today, I didn't have that great of an understanding of a lot of the different niches of security and the value, I guess, of focusing in on them. But I mean, the way you described running cloud security and how. You you have to have all this expertise around each individual cloud provider and the various security, what's the word? Not uh, threats, um weaknesses of the of like set, settings and tools right. yeah, that are available. And I can see I can very easily see that being a thing in every other security niche. Um right. and it's just you just gotta focus in on it and um yeah, I don't know. There's there's tools out there like Bridgecrew to help you do it.
1: Yeah, and I think I think more and more like tools like Bridgecrew, uh, you know, like you said, many other vendors for for kind of the rest of the stack. The idea that these aren't things that can be led on top; they are things that you know you do need to be working with developers. You do need to be kind of where the developers are, and not feel like security is just a burden that's being like draped over the top of a dev team. I think will will massively increase like I said the kind of default security posture because it will it will stop feeling like such a pain to start or implement or you know be something that another team needs to be hired to do um, so yeah hopefully uh, hopefully we're moving in that direction I think we are
0: thank you so much for listening and if you found this episode useful please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it and if you have topics that you'd like to hear,